Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's August 3rd. 1904, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The goal of so many travellers' ambitions was actually in sight. Every obstacle which nature and man combined could heap in our way had finally been overcome, and the sacred city, hidden so far and deep behind the Himalayan ramparts and so jealously guarded from strangers, was full before our eyes. These were the words of Colonel Francis' young husband as he gazed on Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, on this day in 1904. But what he failed to mention is that he had reached this point by leading an expedition that was basically an invasion, killing thousands of bewildered Tibetans in the process. Yeah, I love that he describes himself as a traveller. <laughs> it's hardly a, a good descriptor for a thousand troops and their many thousands of support staff uh, working their way across the, <laughs> the, the tundra. Yeah, he was like, I, lo- I love the cafes. Didn't like yeah. all the roadblocks they kept throwing up in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> so many soldiers I had to slaughter to get to the good <laughs> temples. <laughs> well, we have covered before how the words adventurer, explorer do a lot of work in the kind of Victorian. And that expands into this shoulder of the 20th century, really, doesn't it? Back home in England, he would still be seen as an adventurer. And the fact that along the way, uh, hundreds of Tibetans were massacred for standing up to him would not stand in the way of that description. And I suppose he would say that most of the people that died weren't at his order. It's certainly when you look back at the first massacre in a place called Guru Pass in Tibet, almost farcical. Yeah, although there were certainly farcical elements to this particular expedition, it had kind of a serious big geopolitical backdrop, which was this concept of the great game, the idea that Britain and Russia were jostling for power in this area of Central and South Asia where their enormous empires converged. I think a lot, most people have heard about the battle for Afghanistan that was raging in the late 19th century, but Britain was also really worried about the Russians getting into British India through other Himalayan states, one of those being Tibet, which was nominally under the control of China. Britain was worried that China was in cahoots with Russia and was maybe going to let the Russians sneak in through Tibet. And Britain had pretty much resolved by this stage that they were going to do some sort of a, let's use their term, expedition, but they needed a pretext and they came up with the (laughs) the thinnest possible reason to lead this military incursion when in late 1903, a bunch of Nepalese yak herders strayed just across the northern border into Tibet, which was unmarked. And that was enough for young husband to start putting together his expeditionary force. Yeah, well, the justification was pretty thin all along. Young Husband himself clearly did believe that the Russians were a threat. He wrote in a confidential letter to his father back in the UK, quote, What has brought matters to this head is that the Russians have concluded, or tried to conclude, a secret treaty with Tibet, though their ambassador in London has sworn to Lord Lansdowne that such a thing is the very last thing that his government would dream of doing. 
But it wasn't true. I mean, to skip forward, the, the Tibetan-Russian pact, or evidence of it anyway, was the sort of missing WMDs of 1904. Mm. Like at the <laughs> end of I had that in my notes it, it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said WMDs. <laughs> it's a dodgy dossier, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Tibet was basically a closed kingdom at the time, almost like North Korea is now. It was a religious Buddhist state controlled by the lamas, <laughs> and they weren't interested in opening up to Britain or to the Russians. And Britain felt like they needed to force Tibet to open up commercial and diplomatic links with them. Tibet had zero interest in this. What happened was in 1890, Britain had signed a treaty with China agreeing what the border was going to be between Tibet and British India. However, the problem was that Tibetans didn't think of themselves as vassals to China. They saw the relationship as a priest-patron one. So with China Mm. being the dominant regional power, they were the patron and Tibet providing spiritual advice, spiritual guidance in the form of a priest. So when they heard about this treaty China had signed, telling them what their border was, they totally disassociated themselves from it and said, you know, we're, we're certainly not agreeing to any of this, but we also don't want to talk to the British and we don't want to talk to anyone and we don't want anyone to come here. So mm. the British decided that they were basically just going to force their way in. The force that young husband put together was pretty formidable. He had a thousand fighting troops, which included European officers, plus Gurkhas, Punjabis, as well as Sikh pioneers and Indian army engineers. And a lot of mules. And a lot of mules. Yeah, they had 7,000 mules. Costume, by the way. Have you read what he brought with him in terms of clothes? <laughs> yes, 67 shirts, which I suppose, I mean, you want a variety of shirts if you're the general and it's cold, but 67 and 18 pairs of boots and shoes. It's like Elizabeth Taylor invading <laughs> That was the bit that I thought was a bit superfluous. You're like, what are you going to do with all of those boots and shoes? I mean, admittedly, they were there for like a winter and then some. So they had to, you know, have some options. Smart pair for evening. Yeah, exactly. A casual pair for forcing the Tibetans to sign our petition. Yeah. yeah, well, Tibet was seen as this mysterious land, so maybe he thought that when he got to Lhasa, it'd be like some kind of Shangri-La, and he'd be invited to the balls in the clouds. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what they did need was layers, because they were there for longer than they thought, so they started the expedition, in inverted commas, in 1903, but then winter came before they got anywhere close to Lhasa, and frostbite, along with it, snow. 11 of the soldiers died of pneumonia. Yeah, it was so cold the oil froze inside their rifles. And as they encamped themselves deep into Tibet, the Tibetans did continue to contact them to convince them to leave. And they had several delegates repeatedly visit and deliver the same message, which was that before we can do any sort of negotiating, you have to... Back off. Back off, yeah, get out of the country and then we can come to the table together. And so the Tibetans uh, then built this 1.5 metre high wall at the Guru Pass that you mentioned earlier, Oli. 1.5 1.5 metres. I mean, I suppose they were just trying to create a deterrent, but it's, that's hardly the sort of Great Wall of China that's not going to stop an invading army, particularly one that is incredibly well armed. But this was where you had this first massacre take place. And it was partly because what the Tibetans had as arms behind this wall were mostly um, family heirlooms, like some of them hundreds of years old, very mm. elaborately decorated. I mean, this is an important point. That's why they wanted to hold on to their weapons. But also, as well as the ancestral swords, a few revolvers in their pocket. And in contrast, Young Husband's Expeditionary Force had four pieces of artillery, Maxim guns, you know, the early machine guns, and they had Gurkha and Pashtun soldiers who were used to fighting in mountainous terrain. So it was just... I don't want to infantilise the Tibetans, but it just seems like they didn't have any 
preparation for what this kind of warfare might look like. So the British would just keep advancing and the Tibetans, they didn't want to provoke an attack. Obviously, they could see how well armed the British were. They basically just kept pleading with them to stop advancing. The tone was set from the top as well because the Dalai Lama, who had fled when the British invaded, he wrote back to one of the other Lamas who was still in the country saying, will you request the English privately not to nibble up our country? So they weren't in this brutal war mindset, which just made the whole conflict, like you were saying, Ollie, a little bit farcical. You you know, it's like, Mm. you know, the Blackadder episode where he talks about fighting the the African tribesmen who are armed with sharp pieces of fruit. Yeah, so this is the farcical bit, right? So at Guru Pass, there's a standoff, but the Tibetans effectively do surrender. You can Mm. imagine the scene, the translator at gunpoint, manically trying to explain... (laughs) <laughs> yes, we've surrendered, but these muskets are our decorative family heirlooms. We're going to keep those. And all it took was one of the soldiers, a Sikh, I think, who was with the British, to step forward and try and seize this uh, heirloom from the Tibetan that caused the Tibetan soldier to reach into his pocket, get revolver and shoot him in the face. That was the first shot that was fired. Mm. And in reaction to that, young husband's men started firing all over the place. Of 1,500 men in the Tibetan army, about 700 lay dead. And the British army, by contrast, suffered absolutely no fatalities and just 12 casualties in total. And that really did establish the pattern for what was to come as the British army kept marching forwards. And just one last thing on Young Husband, who keep in mind what's gone before. We've already described the massacres, the made-up dodgy dossier about Russia, etc. After all of this, he wrote in his memoirs, he's, he's described exiting Lhasa and he stops to take in the Patala Palace one last time and he writes the exhilaration of the moment grew and grew till it thrilled through me with overpowering intensity never again could I think of evil or ever again be at enmity with any man and all humanity were bathed in a rosy glowing radiancy and life for the future seemed naught but buoyancy and light Well, he became an advocate ultimately for the independence of Tibet and India because he had uh, spiritual experiences in the Himalayas, mysticism. This is what's interesting about it, isn't it? Again, it's back to that thing of adventurer, explorer, they're overseas. They can commit all kinds of war crimes, but then also somehow come out of it as men dedicated to quelling antagonism between religions and fighting for world peace. Yeah, he founded the World Congress of Faiths, which was committed to exactly that. And you can only imagine that part of his spiritual experience was like, ooh, I don't really like being a person who's involved in massacring too many people. Maybe I'll try and do something like the precise opposite. But it sort of does feel like, I don't know, a little bit too little too late at this stage. Maybe not, though, for him. I mean, maybe he did find closure on what he'd got involved with, you know, uh, as a result. Of <laughs> I've it. forgiven me, and that's what's important. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow. I agree with you, Ollie, that it does get sort of boring and technical, particularly oh, thanks, when you start to. <laughs> Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAS Creator Network.